0: We got the alternative Hello and welcome. This is the Radioactive Show, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and broadcast nationally through the Community Radio Network. Today's show was created on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. I'm your presenter, Lavanya. On 29th August this year, the International Day Against Nuclear Testing, both the Russian and American governments were preparing to hold more nuclear weapon delivery system tests and all nuclear states were actively modernising their weapons. For anti-nuclear activists who've been advocating against the development and testing of nukes since their inception, it's like fighting a zombie war that never ends, to use the words of anti-nukes campaigner Dimity Hawkins. But even though nukes keep rearing their dangerous heads, nuclear resistance has a long and powerful history and continues to shape debates and practices around nuclear weapons and nuclear power today. Here in Australia, there has been a long resistance to nuclear, from mining to weapons to war, and it has reached from the grassroots level to policy and government. Today, we will hear two talks on the power of nuclear resistance in Australia and beyond. First, from Maria Ross-Rubli, nuclear politics researcher from Monash University, and then from Dimity Hawkins, one of the founders of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons.
1: All right, well, I'm so delighted to be here to talk to you about anti-nuclear activism. And I, my research started looking at why countries that could develop nuclear weapons chose not to. And I did not think I'd end up studying activism. But I did. And it was really amazing. The countries that I looked at, Japan, Sweden, West Germany, they were my three big case studies. It actually, if it weren't for the activists um, working against nuclear weapons in those countries, I argue that those countries probably would have nuclear weapons today. And, you know, people say, well, Japan is covered by the U.S. nuclear umbrella or... You know, in Sweden, um, you know, they didn't really want them anyway. There's all sorts of arguments. But when you actually look, the devil's in the details. And when you look at actually what happened in those countries, the importance of civil society is critical to keeping those states from going nuclear. I've done some additional research since then, and funded by a project, generously funded by Norway. They have a disarmament and development grant program, where they did. And um, so I've looked at some other countries, including Mongolia, Costa Rica, and India, and basically, what I'd like to share with you today are um, sort of social psychological um, or tactics using the language of social psychology that really work when it comes to anti-nuclear activism and actually these apply to any type of activism and so I'm drawing from the you know all the research Mongolia, Costa Rica, Japan and uh, Really, I want to share this message because this is like if you want to change a, an oppressive uh, policy or if you want to keep a government from adopting one, you need to have really good activism. You need to do it right. And so I feel like here's some things that we've learned from research using social psychology and political science that um, potentially can make a difference. So I'm looking at, we call them norm entrepreneurs that's just a fancy word for saying, activists, um, and specifically how they can disturb the meaning of nuclear so that it's not focused on state military policy, but so that it's focused on humans and the environment. So how do we disrupt and disturb these sort of ideas of deterrence and weapons policies so that we can focus the lens where it needs to be, which is on citizens and people and And the health of the earth. So, the case studies I looked at in particular um, for this, just to give you a sense of it, in Mongolia, Mongolia was trying to become the first single state nuclear weapons free zone. They still aren't, by the way, because the P5, the countries with the five countries that are allowed to have nuclear weapons, still won't sign on to them having a formal zone. So, they have a nuclear weapons free status. But they did achieve this status, and it took a lot of effort. And in particular, there was one person behind it, um, Ambassador um, Ingsahan, who was both inside the government and outside working tirelessly to protect Mongolia from basically if there was a nuclear um, conflict between Russia and China to protect Mongolia and the Mongolian people. Um, In Costa Rica, there were concerns about... Um, with the Central American Free Trade Zone, that there would be um, – you'd have defense corporations come in and try and set up in Costa Rican territory um, military, basically, factories using depleted uranium. And if you know anything about depleted uranium, it's very harmful to human health. And so we have a parliamentarian who was a medical doctor who, when she learned about this, said, wait, this is not what we need here. We've got to figure out how we can stop this because this is going to hurt our environment. It's going to hurt our health. And so she, um, they ended up, through her efforts, becoming the second state in the world to ban depleted uranium. And so those companies weren't able to move in and set up these factories with all sorts of tax-free um, you know, uh, incentives from the state, et cetera. And I also looked at India. Now, when it comes to social sciences, you're not supposed to just study successful states. You're supposed to study have cases that don't work as well. So you can see, you know, maybe you have three successful states and they or cases, and they all did X. It's like, well, X is what worked. Well, you've got to look at the unsuccessful cases because they might have X also. So in the case of India, where you have a really strong movement to um, – or a, a really persistent movement to – Um, force India to, for example, pledge no first use policy, um, you know, and work toward disarmament. And it has not been successful. So, and it was actually really useful looking at India because it it showed me some of the things that the successful states cases had, India did not have. So I'll just jump into sort of what, what these things are. So basically, if I want to influence you, uh, one thing I might do, if I have a norm I want you to adopt, I can link it to a norm that you have. And so an example of this is if you're vegan and you want to persuade someone who's not vegan to become vegan, um, but you know they're environmentalist, then you link veganism to the value of an environment. This is a successful way to get people to process and accept a norm. Another is Activation. You know, there's lots of things going on in the media, lots of things being debated in politics. If you can activate a norm, make it central, get it covered in the media, get people talking about it, then people are more likely to accept that normative influence. And uh, consistency. People want to behave in a way that's consistent with past behavior. And so, again, if you're trying to persuade a policymaker or a corporation to, to accept or, or act according to a certain norm, then you talk about how it fits in with their past behavior. There are also conditions that affect norm potency. So where, you know, you may be activating a norm and trying to link a norm, but if there's some other things you can do, it can, it can increase that potency. One of them is uncertainty. Um, sort of cost-benefit calculations are uncertain, they're more likely to accept normative influence. When they're surrounded by people who are similar to them or people they want to be similar to, they're more likely to accept normative influence. Um, Conflict. If there's conflict, then that decreases norm potency. Now, this all sounds pretty basic, doesn't it? It sounds really basic. But when you apply this to look at these anti-nuclear activists, you can see how these lessons play out. In um, Costa Rica, Dr. Adine Von Herold she started out with a link to health human health and the environment as a doctor and she found it didn't matter like people didn't listen to that or fellow parliamentarians didn't really care and so she tried different links and she, she hit on this link of you know Costa Rica is peaceful they're the only country in the world without, a, without an army when she started talking in those terms that do we really want to undermine this history and this reputation and, and this is who Costa Rica is that link resonated and she didn't have a single person argue with her once she started that now there were barriers that she faced, for example, from the finance ministry, but um, that was the link that she was able to use to to overturn the objections and sort of the apathy and get this, um, it was a unanimous vote to ban depleted uranium weapons, first in the free trade zones and then elsewhere. Um, Activation is also really critical, and it's the media that does it. So I saw in all of my cases, the media would activate and it would make a big difference. For example, in the Um, The Mongolian case, you had Ambassador Inksehan who was, when he first he was in the government and then he said, "I I can't get any further with me in the government. I have to go outside the government. So he ended up leaving government service and starting an NGO called Blue Banner so that he could start getting this media attention. He, could, you know, he couldn't basically criticize his government while he was a member of the government. So going outside of the government, um, he was able to, um, for example, they'd hold conferences and get foreign press in, and then the foreign press would suddenly raise this issue. And that creates pressure, that activation. It, it highlights the norm. It makes it harder to just sort of sweep it under the rug. The Indian case, it was very difficult. For example, activation in the media... Um, When I was in in India, you know, people were telling me, you know, when it comes to nuclear issues, the media is far right or extreme far right. And um, they only have one or two people that they'll call up in terms of... You know, it's anti-nuclear, and they sort of just bring up the same old arguments. They don't make any fresh links. You know, the things that we saw Adin Von Harold doing, sort of trying different things. and, And, you know, actually, having looked at some of the transcripts, I could see that this was the case. Also in India, it's very difficult to take the strategy that they did in Mongolia. You cannot, as an NGO, accept any money from foreign sources and if you do you'll lose your license to operate and and you're not going to find it's very hard to find money you know in um, within India on on the anti-nuclear cause and so basically it's a way to starve these groups of the ability to link and to activate and when I think about the Australian case the anti-nuclear effort has done an amazing job the better we can frame activism the better we can create strategies that really work the better it is. And, and I am concerned in Australia in terms of um, nuclear policy. You know, we're hearing Hugh White, for example, saying maybe we need nuclear weapons. And, you know, I've already been thinking in terms of some of these strategies, how do we, you know, we still have to be thinking at some point this may become more serious and we have to be thinking now and acting now. How can we frame, how can we link, how can we activate Um, How can we create uncertainty in ways that promote the anti-nuclear norm that uh, you know Australia has done a great job at promoting, not just in Australia but internationally through diplomatic means? Thanks very much.
0: This is The Radioactive Show, broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. We just heard a talk from Maria Ross-Rubley from Monash University. Next up, we will hear from Dimity Hawkins on the history and power of nuclear resistance and activism in the Australian context.
2: What I wanted to do today was talk about that resistance history and really focus on Australia. Um, I wanted to talk about the relentlessness of the nuclear proposals in this country. And the silencing of resistance and why that matters, because there is a silencing of resistance. And, but I also wanted to highlight just a few of the great campaigns and some of the really great people. I mean, really a few. But I just wanted to sort of share some of that history in recent years about the campaign, because I think that's really interesting. I am what some people are now calling me a long-term feminist, disarmament activist. That means I'm old. Um, But I'm also a real uh, political resistance history and herstory obsessive. So when I look at things like nuclear resistance, when I think about those sorts of things, I see it as part of a complex continuum. And I see it as something that has been playing out now for nearly three quarters of a century, but it's really tied deeper roots... So things like the movements for peace, the movements around feminism and the feminist agenda, being against colonialism but for human rights and for environmental rights as well. And the reason I do that is because our region has really copped it. Following World War II in the Marshall Islands alone, the US conducted 67 nuclear tests, um, most of them atmospheric, and the testing of those weapons equated to 1.6 Hiroshima-sized bombs being exploded every day for 12 years on the people of the Marshall Islands. That's just one example. In 1952, the British, of course, started testing here in Australia, and they kept on testing, and then they went off to the northern Pacific along with the United States. And the United States and Britain kept bombing in the Pacific until the Partial Test Ban Treaty came in in 1963. Then, of course, we thought we had a lull there. But 1966, in come France. And they started bombing, and they went on for 30 more years. So in Australia and the Pacific, between 1946 and 1996, we saw 315 nuclear weapons tests. And every single one of those was conducted by a country that had colonised these places. And that's a really big part of the story here. From those regional nuclear tests, to medical experiments, to uranium mines, to nuclear waste dumps, to proposals to get our own nuclear weapons, here in the 60s under the Gorton government, even to wars, we've seen a lot. But we've also stopped a lot. I have brought with me a visual prop. Hooray! Because, really, I get boring after a while. So the visual prop is the nuclear map of Australia. I don't know, how many of you have seen this before in one form or another? Yeah. Yeah. So it's actually available online you can download it you can print it off for yourselves you can order it as well but it's a really good demonstration of the kinds of problems the kinds of problems that we have faced here it also shows us the persistence of the threats and the relentlessness of the challenges but also importantly the pervasiveness of our victories we have seen people respond to nearly every proposal in this country when they are known And there's been a lot of secrecy about this as well. Certainly every modern nuclear project has faced contest in this country. And that's really thanks to people like you. Everyday people have actually stood up to stop these kinds of things happening. We may not be a huge movement at the moment on the streets, but we have been in the past. And even at our most peeled back and kind of, you know, small, we have been a really effective one without the sometimes small but always determined australian nuclear free movement we have this country would have had a very different face but i would contend that the silencing and the marginalizing of the nuclear resistance story in this country is a deliberate strategy by disregarding the stories of resistance the radioactive zombie crew can pretend over and over again that these proposals that they're putting forward are new and innovative and solutions. This silencing, or more accurately, erasure, because that's what it is, takes its method from one of the more insidious habits of colonialism. The silencing of stories of the lived experience, the undervaluing of activism and advocacy, the losing of stories, whether through deliberate writing over of histories, or the exclusion of stories of community defiance. The non-recording in parliamentary and media and academic histories. The absence of fully accountable medical and scientific studies about the results of testing or other projects. The lack of research and arts or other funding dedicated to these stories. All of these things add to the acts of erasure that amount to a loss of our true histories and histories on this. Women's voices, Indigenous voices... Voices of women, of people of color, as well as marginalized and non binary voices, are undermined in particular on this. We see our resistance victories being lost one generation to the next because they're not being recorded, they're not being given the space, they're not being given the deliberate, intentional re- recording, basically. We need to be careful that we are recording these things really deliberately for a permanent record as well, because otherwise we'll be losing them. And if we lose them, those future generations are going to be facing these same fights, and yet they're not going to be able to learn from our histories and herstories. So through systemic silencing and, our, and their own incremental incre- incrementalist – I knew I'd stumble on that word tonight – but incrementalist narratives, which is what we can go into a little bit more, the nuclear advocates can pretend that we don't know the impact of the harm that they do. They can pretend that we forget that they regularly override human rights to impose their deadly projects. And they can pretend we can forget that they always create more problems than they ever solve. So Yvonne Margarula, who is senior traditional owner up of the Mirror People up in Kakadu, once said that the promises never last, but the problems always do. To know your history basically is a radical act, so learn about it. Anyway, this movement is determined, tenacious even, It's intentional, it's deliberately and relentlessly addressing proposal after proposal, knocking them down, but more importantly as well, they're building up the alternatives. So not just being in opposition to not just anti-nuclear, but nuclear-free. And what does that mean? It's intersectional, so it's going across cultural and gender and sovereignty and intergenerational, international, regional lines. It tries to remain creative and reliable and searingly responsive to the complexity of the problems that are created by this industry. Environmentalists and indigenous communities, communities of faith, unionists, academics, medicos, legal-legals, I've got quite the list, Mm -hmm. artists, musicians. Students, veterans, farmers, scientists, all these groups and many more have all played a role in this over the decades. This movement embodies something really beautiful an old adage think globally, act locally, respond personally. And I think that's still very, very true here. I wanted to just sketch out just a few of the very many, many hundreds of great campaigns, great people, just point to a few great people. But I wanted to start with those who are currently resisting the nuclear waste dumps in this country. The protagonists for Nuclear Waste Dumps think that these places are out of sight, out of mind. They're hoping that we will buy their colonialist imaginations, that these places are the middle of nowhere. But the people who live there know it as home. They are standing up to protect their ancient connections. So in the 1990s, late 1990s, early 2000s, the Kupapiti Kunga Judah... A group of senior traditional women, particularly from South Australian communities, worked tirelessly against the proposed nuclear waste dump on their country, calling for Irrituwanti, poison, leave it. The dump proponents then switched to the Northern Territory, and the traditional owners around Mukherjee and the NT won their fight against the dump in 2014. This is a really compressed history here. (laughs) Their resistance helps inform the current fight against the waste dump proposed for two communities in South Australia right now, one in the Flinders Ranges and the other in South South Australia's Ear Peninsula. Some of the creative responses back in the early 2000s in support of these grassroots movements were things like Humps Not Dumps. Has anyone heard about Humps Not Dumps? (laughs) Humps Not Dumps was eight women cameleers who rode for a 1,000 kilometres across the outback in the desert to educate the community about the nuclear waste dump proposal. Amazing project. There was also the Nuclear Freeways Project, which was run through Friends of the Earth, and it travelled with mock waste car store throughout the transport corridor from New South Wales to South Australia. Through the pastoral, rural and wine country, they demonstrated to local councils and emergency services and communities the risks of nuclear waste transports. For many Aboriginal communities in particular, ongoing waves of uranium exploration, proposed new uranium mines, national waste dumps on the background of intergenerational impacts of nuclear testing are a corrosive assault on community and physical and mental health. In the movement itself, that goes more generally for all of us working on those things. There is of course the persistent work though of people like the Mira people, who were up in the Kakadu, who have been standing strong for country in the face of demands from uranium miners. Not only did they stop and impose the Jabaluka uranium mine proposal in the 1990s and into the 2000s, they are now seeing an end to the uranium mining that was imposed on them through the Ranger uranium mine in the 1970s. MIRA are now closely monitoring Rio Tinto's rehabilitation of the mine site with an aim of no toxic legacy in Kakadu. To build the social rehabilitation of the area, MIRA have successfully lobbied the NT and the Commonwealth governments to restore the renewal of the town of Jabiru. They are pushing forwards with innovative investments of infrastructure and indigenous-led tourism and sustainable cultural projects in the Kakadu region. It's an amazing story. There are too many other uranium-resistant stories in South Australia, Northern Territory, Western Australia, Queensland. Many communities have found solidarity and valuable information through ANFA, the Australian Nuclear Free Alliance. It's been running since 1997. It brings together Aboriginal people and relevant civil society organisations concerned about the nuclear developments in Australia, particularly on Aboriginal homelands. In response to the entrenched nuclear colonialism, nuclear racism in Australia, ANFA has been sharing knowledge, skills and experience for over 22 years now. And the Faux ACE Collective runs radioactive exposure tours every couple of years and has been doing it for decades and decades. So they take small teams of interested activists, students, others onto country to meet locals affected by and resisting nuclear projects. I mean, there's so many good things happening in this country on this space. In collaborations against nuclear weapons, we have seen mass movements like the NFIP movement, the Nuclear Free and Independent Pacific movement. We have had countless stories about survivors of nuclear weapons testing, such as the fearless work of individuals like the late Yami Lester, who worked to seek justice for community, and he pushed for the Royal Commission in the 1980s into the British nuclear testing. His daughters, Karina and Rose, have continued this work, and they're continuing this work now, and they sort of work particularly around intergenerational health impacts, but they're also ambassadors, for ICANN as well. Annie Sue Coleman-Hasseldean, who was a child again when the British did their nuclear testing in the 1950s and 60s, she is now also an ICANN ambassador. In recent years, of course, we've seen ICANN activists, ICANN Australian activists, doing things like dropping banners off the DFAT buildings to protest Australia's recalcitrance. We've been cutting up bombs outside of Pine Gap. But then we also donned very nice professional gear, and go and walk the talk in Parliament House. And then we've also seen ICANN activists going into the United Nations and walking through the corridors and in the conference rooms to talk about nuclear disarmament with whoever and whoever is even reluctant to talk about nuclear disarmament. So we've seen a huge, huge movement, and it's been incredibly collaborative, and there's many, many stories I could tell you about all of that but they've also made a nuclear ban a reality, which is really exciting. So I guess what I wanted to say really more than anything is that we've got an incredibly proud history here in Australia. At every turn, Australians are standing up and speaking out about these issues, and we should be very proud of that fact. It is strong, it is proud, and it is on the right side of history, but it also takes eternal vigilance because these zombie nuclear cowboys have a a way of just regurgitating their ideas to us again and again and that normative effect that you were talking about that can happen in a positive sense for our movements can also happen in their proponents for these projects.
0: This is the Radioactive Show, broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. We just heard from Dimity Hawkins from ICANN, who gave us a snapshot on the history and power of First Nations and other nuclear activism in Australia. That's all we've got time for today. Before I go, I'd like to thank Friends of the Earth Melbourne for their ongoing support of The Rad Show. Our episodes are available to podcast on www.3cr.org.au slash radioactive. We encourage listeners to get in touch via Radioactive Show's Facebook page or email on radioactiveshow.3cr at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and keep tuning in for nuclear-free news and views.